This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Well, hello and welcome to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled and Acadia Company. And today I'm joined by two friends and longtime collaborators, Philip and Brian. Philip Jackson is the co-founder of Future Commerce, a retail media and research brand, and heads up commerce strategy at Right Point, which is a 2021 Forrester customer experience strategy challenger rated consultancy. And Brian Lang is the co-founder of Future Commerce, an industry veteran with over a decade of experience on the agency side of commerce. And what is Future Commerce? Future Commerce is a retail and e-commerce focused media company with newsletters, podcasts, and research to help brands grow with purpose. So welcome back to the show, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. (laughs) It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Carrie. Yeah, well, we were just talking in person a few weeks ago in Palm Beach West. You held your first ever Visions Summit that I was super thrilled to be part of. And today we're here talking about Visions 2022. What is it? How can it help brands? Some of the themes. You guys called it a place for your most ambitious ideas, if I'm getting that right. So if we yeah. can start with that, like what is Visions? Visions is a few things. You know, there's certainly the media content portion of Visions. It's an annual trends report. So you have the big meaty piece of research, right? And the consumer survey that powers a lot of our insights. But it's also, you know, how we're creating themes of our own to be able to talk and contextualize about the things that are happening in our world and the evolution of commerce as, you know, as we're all experiencing it and to put it into a context that I think, you know, is native to the future commerce, you know, world of content. You know, so often, there are themes that come back over and over again. And I think we're pretty good these days at pattern matching and figuring out how those themes play into our larger narrative. And so this year's vision report identifies eight of those themes. And we have a good amount of research and a good amount of editorial and some of the smartest people that we know that helped to come together over a summit to define you know, the body of this report and the almost 15 hours of content that will follow across podcasts and videos in the next month or two. Which is great. It's the first time we've launched something of this magnitude, I think, all at one time, where we're combining in-person with audio and written and original research. It's the best of future commerce than one tidy package. (laughs) (laughs) And so in prior years, the report has been, it's been a report, right? It's been, you got it printed and a couple of different treatments there. But why did you go for this format this year with, you know, essentially like a docu-series that you're creating? Well, (laughs) as you know, we all participate in the attention economy. And I think that, you know, the way that we engage with media is very diverse from one person to the next. And so just putting 
all of our effort into a written piece that, you know, if you're like me, probably sits in your inbox unread for six months before you just give up <laughs> and archive it. And so we're trying to help get the insights in the report out to as many people as possible and to help folks to engage with that content. Some people prefer video, some people prefer podcast. And I also think that each one of those media consumption formats allow for a different type of storytelling and for a different kind of artful and emotional you know, response that you can package into how we're talking about what is effectively like really challenging subject matter in some regards. You know, some of the themes of the report, I think, require hearing the human emotion behind the things we're talking about besides just the logical reason of why we're talking about it. Yeah, I think it really did bring out more. I think that naturally conversation leads to more insight. And so, you know, Philip and I have, we've worked with people and had conversations in the past for when we created visions, but a lot of those conversations were, you know, a little bit more private one-to-one. We weren't necessarily publishing those conversations. And we realized that those were actually a part of the content itself. There were so many additional insights in there. So I think that this allows our audience to be able to take visions as far as they want to take it. Like, they can dive as deep into these concepts and there's just, I mean, there's going to be six months of content (laughs) to consume over a period of time and grow and learn more. And it's also going to be, I think, an opportunity for us to add additional trends and contents on a little bit more of an iterative basis. So by creating a property, I think that gives us an opportunity to re-engage and add to what we've done. Yeah, And if I can answer a question that you haven't asked yet, Kiri, (laughs) I think that we're also entering into a relatively uncertain period of, of, you know, economic challenges. If not, then, you know, we run the risk of willing that into being with all of our consternation in the e-commerce community. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty (laughs) and folks Mm -hmm. are rightfully a little bit, you know, concerned about the future. Mm -hmm. And most people in our industry cannot remember the last, you know, bear market that, Mm -hmm. you know, having to live through. And I think a lot of the content in our ecosystem might be focused around tips and tricks, ways to sort of market in a downturn, and might be overly indexed in, you know, the one weird trick that helps you make your plan for the quarter. We're trying to counter program against Mm -hmm. that. I think if you can understand you know, at the core, you know, what the personhood of the consumer is and how they think and how complex they really are. And you can value that. I think that's a much more durable, you know, there's no such thing as evergreen content, of course, but I think that's a much more durable and has a longer shelf life type of content for the e-commerce marketer or for the brand operator than, you know, something that, you know, really only has practical application for Q3 and Q4 of 2022. Yeah, you're really speaking to me because I'm definitely in the tips and tricks camp. That has a time and place. Sure. But I appreciate what you guys do because it is more long ranging. It's more sort of psychological, getting under the skin of the shoppers as you talk about, and something that is relatable for practitioners at all different stages within an organization as well, right up to leadership. So let's get into some of the themes to give people a sense of what kind of content is covered here and a view into some of the conversations that you've had with Visions. So I'll start with one of the themes, if you don't mind me sharing, the profitability Mm -hmm. of distraction. And the tagline here is that our collective distraction is your profit. 
And this is where you call out some brands, search for new channels or ways to reach customers as essentially fads. And among those fads, you call out things like live stream shopping and Web3 and social commerce. And I was thinking, wow, you might really be making some enemies with some of those statements, (laughs) really putting it out there. I mean, to the point of like, let's have a longer shelf life on this. You're really rolling the dice there. But yeah, could you explain that argument a little bit further? I'll take a shot at it first. Brian and I being co-hosts of a podcast, you know, certainly can have our own pet-a-tete here. Yep. Let's further define what, you know, the profitability of distraction could mean, Mm. because I think there's a few ways for us to dissect it. In the report, one of the things that we mention is there tends to be, at least in the West and specifically in the U.S., we ascribe some sort of value or success to people who are multidisciplinary or who have varied pursuits. So let's think about that for a moment. College entrance exams, 30% of college acceptance criteria has to do with what? Extracurricular activity. The more, the better. If you look at very successful CEOs, the people that we you know, ascribe you know, high net worth to, people who are considered to be extremely successful or effective, they're CEOs not just of one company anymore, but two or three. And not just that, just generally as an executive member, you're expected to participate in nonprofits and chair boards and have you know, a rolling fund. No one has just one pursuit anymore. What's really interesting about that is how discordant that is with most of our operators in the world who we're very, very like through no uncertain terms, we're pretty prescriptive about them having limited outside pursuits, right? I grew up in an era where, you know, having two full-time jobs was absolutely taboo. Like you are paid to focus only on one thing. And that was not a thing that you never, ever admitted that you were moonlighting. You never talked about freelance work and you rarely talked about, you know, your extracurriculars that may be pulling your distraction away. I think we're actually much more amenable in today's society to admit that we're all infinitely distracted. It's actually who we all really are. Well, it's glorified as well. Like hustle culture is glorified. And yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Brian, I saw you wanting to jump in there. So Oh, no, I think you're dead on. And it is glorified. The profitability of distraction is like it's lifted up. I'll add to I'm not counteracting anything that was said, I'll add to this. I think that there are benefits to this. We live in an ever-changing world. It's very difficult to understand what's coming next. One of the ways to mitigate against the future is to be diversified Mm. as individuals and businesses. And so I think the opportunity here is that we often don't know which channels are going to be the ones that we end up seeing success in or blow up in. And so I think my argument is that this isn't necessarily a bad thing if it's done right. Having your toe in many ponds definitely can give you a leg up when that pond becomes an ocean. (laughs) I think the opportunity is to be diversified. The downside to that, of course, is split focus. And so I think it means being really intentional about how much you're investing in other channels, leaning in when you see strength or opportunity. Yeah. One more thing about that too is, you know, I mentioned the attention economy earlier. There's never been, you know, more choice than there is today in the amount of media that you can consume. Mm. And there is a prevailing narrative, especially around the live streams shopping crowd that's like, oh, commerce is entertainment. And every commerce brand must become an entertainment brand. And every entertainment brand must become a content brand. Mm. And I start to wonder at its core how 
if like if that's a zero sum game or not like this paradox of choice and the infinite amount of choice that we have for the type of media that we can consume effectively creates a numbness in the consumer to for it to not work in any way for anyone the standouts you know are few and far between the rest of it is just background static noise that we all have to somehow now filter in our everyday lives and then you have a generation of people that are growing up you know with that is as being the norm and having you know millions and millions of voices i think that that can certainly be positive and it can be experiential and especially like contextual like social media it used to be kiri if i was going to watch shoppable media if i was going to watch qvc it's in a studio with artificial light and it's an artificially contrived context where you're putting a you know you're putting a sheet cake into an oven and then you open the other oven and here it is it's cooked right it's an artificial context but today we can actually see the real context and there's real people making real things in their home and it's bringing you into a different type of a context this is all contributing to like yeah ostensibly the experiences are better there's just billions of them to have to sift through mm-hmm. and so as brands are kind of like trying to figure out where their next stage of growth comes from I think you have to really consider the fact that like are you adding to the noise or are you really like creating something that's truly unique and different and has a reason to have to exist it's more mm-hmm. of an existential crisis for a brand yeah. than anything attention footprint it's like your carbon footprint but it's your atten- like how much attention are you taking is it like good or bad <laughs> last thing in answering questions you didn't ask we like to ask questions that don't have really tidy answers. I think that's what sets future commerce apart from others, which is we're talking about a future that doesn't quite exist yet. And I think that there's, you know, a multitude of ways that that future could come into being. What I hope exists is a future that's equitable for the consumer and for the brand and has a shared balance of power between the two where no one, you know, benefits more over another. For that to come into being, we really have to kind of think about, you know, what is good for the consumer and is like are we adding to are we doing something in an equitable way that, you know, builds a future that we're all proud of? I think that that's a hard to answer question and it's not so succinct. So I think that's fair. I mean, the experience that a lot of people have scrolling Instagram, for example, it's all, and I would say a big piece of human psychology is the wanting. And what is that Buddhist phrase? It's the wanting Mm. The wanting undoes you at the end of the day. So the, you know, status anxiety, keeping up with the Joneses, we're kind of wired to never be fully satisfied. And something like Instagram or live stream shopping and all these new different shopping contexts that we will engage with, they all sort of play on that human nature of being unsettled and being unsatisfied and comparison So I think that that might also be part of it, the profitability of distraction. (laughs) Yeah. And to that end, like a lot of these activities are very isolating activities. Mm. So like I wrote an article a couple of years ago on Black Friday and how Black Friday used to be kind of this manic like family day out shopping together. Mm. But now Black Friday is just like, this isolating experience where you're like staring at your screen and scrolling (laughs) by yourself. And I think that, you know, this gets down to, I I think you're right. Like the aspirational, like maybe I'll just find that one thing. Maybe like if I could just consume this one thing, it will actually help me. And you've got to sort through 
all these other things define the thing you want. This is the definition of a bad attention footprint. (laughs) Could we get into this from the perspective also of the brands or the manufacturers or even retailers, this, you know, to what extent are they being distracted by these bright, shiny objects of Web3 and live stream and these different channels? And like, do you think it's fair to say there is a, you know, a side for and against because for example, I'd, I think that live streaming can be a huge distraction, but for some of my clients that we work with at Acadia, we see actually great results from live stream shopping when done in the right way. We see great results from TikTok being used in the right way. So it could be argued that for some of these brands engaging with more experimental channels and ways to reach customers, it can be very helpful for them. Yeah, let's actually touch on another subject of the report, which is, you know, this idea of plurality of identity. And I think that there is an, you know, a challenge that brands are going to be faced with in the next 10 years, which is you have all of these channels you're operating in. They all require some sort of unique understanding of like the nativity of that channel, like how native you are to that channel, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't just turn on a live stream and expect to be successful. Like you have to cultivate a talent for that, right? There's a style of selling and demonstration and a pitter patter that like a uniquely talented and adept individual who's really good at selling and demonstrative selling can create. That is a native capability and a native talent that you have to build in that channel. Ultimately, what winds up happening is every one of these channel investments creates a new voice for your brand, creates a new facet for your brand, and it pluralizes a brand's identity. So brands are no longer monoculture, you know, beings. They aren't just one thing to everybody. They are now everything to everybody. And Mm -hmm. one is going to have to figure out at some point, and it's, you know, I think most brands who are doing this today are trying to do it in an experimental fashion without understanding that there's an existential crisis 10 years from now in that people will grow up and they'll expect the brand to be one thing and the brand will be trying to force them to have to think recontextualize them and think of them as something else. And I think that many brand marketers and channel marketers, social media marketers are all creating a lot of positive signals in the areas that they have some success in and in their specific channels that I'm concerned that, you know, there's a multiple personality disorder that brands are going to have to reconcile in a decade's time. And most people are just sweeping it under the rug to say that's somebody else's problem for a future date. Or it just stays like that forever. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes I don't think that that is such a bad thing. Like you think about Crocs, for example. Crocs, and I went to a talk by the founder a few years ago, and he invented Crocs as a shoe for boat, for people who've spent a lot of time on boats, on yachts and stuff like that. And it was kind of this dorky shoe for a long time. Now there's a huge resurgence. That's like a plurality of a brand if ever I saw one. Like on a certain type of human, they're the dorkiest things ever. (laughs) On another certain (laughs) type of human of a certain, you know, age group, they're very cool. I do think that's a really interesting example. I'm really happy you brought that up because I didn't know you were going to bring that up. I wrote an article series called the existential brands a while back and i brought up croc specifically as an example of a brand that started by expanding its identity in a really 
pour away. So they had this huge explosion of growth. Then they tried to expand category and they were Mm -hmm. making like Crocs ballet flats and they were like growing way outside of like where their core identity was. And the brand actually floundered significantly Mm -hmm. until Andrew Reese came in and helped them refocus who they were and then grow out of that, which took a serious shift in thinking. Mm -hmm. The problem with the way they did it initially is they did it because they saw an opportunity to go capture market. They didn't work out of like a, this is who we are position. Mm -hmm. This is why we are valuable to people. (laughs) And instead they're like, oh, we should just go expand category. And just going to expand category or just going to expand channel because you see like a channel popping up. I think, Philip, that's what you were talking about. Like just going and just doing it because it's there. It's got to be part of who you are. It's got to be intentional. Well, let's get back to this idea that there's a future challenge to have to reconcile, which is if you're Crocs and you have the sort of you know, you have one type of a consumer who, you know, sees this, you know, who just, it's a shoe, right? It's a shoe that we wear and they're easy to wear and they're easy to put on. And, you know, it's sort of a lifestyle brand. That's great. There's also a type of consumer that, you know, looks to Crocs as sort of being irreverent and intentionally ironic. And that type of consumer has, you know, Crocs is absolutely marketing too. They do collabs with KFC and with Post Malone that, you know, are specifically trying to engage and profit on the idea that like, it's a countercultural movement. Now Crocs has some sort of, they've achieved, you know, what I would call like, you know, escape velocity and that they've become sort of culturally, you know, relevant across the board. But there will be a day, I believe, where you go to crocs.com and Crocs will be forced and so will many other brands to have to ask you which experience you prefer. Do you want the Post Malone KFC wild brand or do you want the lifestyle shopping experience? And the plurality of identity and this faceted identity of a brand is not necessarily the brand. Like, let's reframe that. It's not that the brand is trying to be all things to all people. It's that people demand that the brand be personal to them. And the power dynamic of the consumer pulling the brand apart into many pieces is something that I don't think a lot of brands are ready for. And mm-hmm. there are technical challenges and hurdles in the future that I don't think we're anyone is really understanding that like there's a future experience that we're all going to have to reconcile with is that you can't just have a best fit average website that transacts the same way for everybody. Yeah, There is a future where highly personalized shopping experiences and specific shopping experiences to people's personalities and psychographics is going to be demanded from the consumer. Mm-hmm. That's a future that I think we're all going to have to deal with. And it really only takes one company making an investment of that sort and having some sort of a touchstone for us all to look at and say, oh, it's the Pokemon Go moment. Oh, it's like one outlier will create a new expectation from everybody. Hmm. And that's the thing we're trying to forecast here is that all of these trends that are in Visions 2022 are actually all adjacent to each other because they're all sympathetic because we're all living in the same timeline, I think. I saw everything <laughs> everywhere all at once. I'm starting to question if we're all in the same timeline. I don't know. But, you know, we all perceive that we're all living in this moment together. So all of these trends are commingling and interacting together in a way that I think that brands have to contend with more than one of them at, at any given time. 
Right. So my last question is sort of based, kind of comes off of what you were just describing, Philip, which is the application of some of these things. And we were talking at the start of the episode about the tips and tricks and tactics, and but this is sort of more thematic. How do you see people who read your report, people in the industry using some of these findings and themes in an application, work application? So we've at least gone to some effort to try to, not necessarily in the report, but in a forthcoming companion guide, create like the practical application guide for the visions report. Because I think it's really important to not be reductive and firmly plant this in 2022 as like, here's what you can do in response to this. But I do think that, you know, some people would like it to be sort of spelled out. Let's use profitability of distraction for a moment. We talked about this hyper-personalization in the future. I think that that's one practical application. How will customers opt into that? And how will brands store this opt-in behavior? And how will we, you know, discern one consumer segment from another? I think we have tools today that allow for that. So if you look at the existing tools that you could implement today, it could be a proliferation of CDP and headless e-commerce that create the ability for you to opt in, right? You can opt in to a certain type of experience. And then what happens? Your opt-in is remembered and persists for a future experience. And that front end, that consumer experience that you've opted into, well, maybe that, you know, is specific to you. And now e-commerce becomes like TikTok or Instagram, where your experience, your algorithmic experience of that e-commerce channel is fundamentally different from mine. And if that is happening in media, you can probably hedge a bet that in some future state, it happens in commerce as well. I believe we have the tools today to make it happen. It just, it already requires a significant investment on behalf of the brand right now, technically to manage one experience. (laughs) I don't know how or where we get to manage a multitude of experience or an infinite number of experiences. That's going to, you know, But we also thought that it wasn't possible, you know, through media 10 years ago. And now we see creators have, you know, enabled some of that and AI and algorithms have enabled the other part of it to sort of allow it to happen in mass. So that is a practical outgrowth, right? So if you're building for the future, you're building for 10 years from now, potentially an investment in CDP and headless is somewhere you might be looking to go. But, you know, that's a costly investment to make in 2022 for a future state that doesn't exist yet. It's costly, but it's also timely. We've been talking about headless and CDP for a long time. And there's stories of how people have implemented headless. We've seen some good examples of it. The ground is already kind of broken, if you will, where we've dug for the foundation. It might be time to start building now. Mm. All right, guys, just one last question, lightning round question for each of you. What have you changed your mind about recently? Everything. I think very specifically, I sort of vacillate back and forth on things like social commerce. I don't know. Well, Hawk, who was the founder of Visa, said that, you know, a community cannot exist solely for commercial gain. Like a community cannot exist if the only, you know, perspective that it has is to have some sort of commercial or financial upside. I think communities have to be like, spiritually and emotionally aligned to something else beyond just, you know, personal gain. That resonates so deeply with me. And it's also the thing that I think, you know, I saw social commerce as maybe this massive opportunity for contextual purchase. But as you start to see how communities align themselves outside of Web3 anyway, which I would not 
characterize as a community. It's, it's so much as a cult, but that's a whole other conversation. I believe social commerce is going to be in the way that we've all envisioned it. I might have changed my mind and my position on it is like, I think it's going to be really challenging to have, you know, your Mayo brand on Twitter, you know, being punchy and having and taking cheap shots and engaging in meme culture and having a channel specific voice while also expecting a consumer to then one click purchase, you know, Hellman's. And I think that that's where like having that kind of discourse in context with the purchase sort of devalues that the idea that this is a community of people and now refocuses it on the commercial gain. So I think social commerce is going to be something that doesn't exist the way that maybe I previously thought it would. Hmm. What about you, Brian? Yeah, for me, last year I wrote a piece called How Now Brown Brand Cow (laughs) about how Technology provides some natural boundaries for us to lean up against when we go to build our experiences and how leaning into technology is actually good and using it as a starting place is good um, and more cost effective and helps you make better decisions. And that is true to some extent. It absolutely is. And you can save a lot of money if you do things that way. It's a lot more cost effective to do that. And I love contrarian thinking. So actually moving into this next year when everyone is focused on cost cutting and leaning into technology and not getting custom, my vote would be actually the opposite. I am ready to start thinking about things from a blue sky perspective. And I think instead of leaning in against technology, we should have technology meet our needs, our customers' needs first. And yes, that's going to cost a little bit more. And this gets back to the headless and CDP conversation we were just having. I think that you need to find technology that fits your needs, but you're going to play towards your customers and towards your brand strengths first. And that is very contrary to what I think is about to happen mm-hmm. in the next few months. Well, fascinating stuff as always. I have seen a sneak peek of the report. I think that there's some really interesting stuff in here. We spent, as I mentioned, some time together talking about the themes from this report with a bunch of very smart, diverse people from the industry and hashing out what does this really mean? What are some real life contexts? Which I think to your point, Philip, you don't want to overdo that and be too prescriptive, but to bring it to life for for people like me who really need the examples at least. (laughs) So to find the report and all of the supplementary content, it's visions.report that folks can go to. Is that right? Yeah. And also, you know, future commerce anywhere where media is found. And we certainly, you know, we'll be talking about it for the next, you know, six plus months. And there's certainly no hurry, but you can engage with it in in whatever form you like, newsletter, written report, podcast, or video. Futurecommerce.fm. Yeah, there it is. There's the plug. (laughs) Yes. So I'm a big fan of your show. That's how we got introduced in the first place. I think I told you guys I was trying to recall how we actually got introduced and I'd been listening to the Future Commerce podcast for a while and I emailed in saying, you said something wrong. Here's why you're wrong. And I don't even think that you responded right away, but that eventually you did. So it is what I love about Future Commerce is diversity of thought, diversity of opinions. You really welcome different points of view and talking about what's going on in our industry in a more sort of in a more strategic philosophical way than I think we we often get bogged down in the details and in the tactics. So it always helps to elevate me from all the sort of tactical day-to-day stuff and think about things at a higher level. That's what I 
That's what I appreciate about Future Commerce. Well, thank Thanks, you. Gary. And thank you again for having us back on your show. Yes, yes. Great to be a part of this. And we'll link up to the report and Future Commerce in the show notes. If you want to learn more, just go and subscribe to the podcast as well. Great to see you guys and thanks for joining me. Good to see you. Thank you, Kiri. Bye.